Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for friends of the Hebrew Bible everywhere. I'm Rosie Candethel, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University in Atlanta. And I'm the Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of BS at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. <laughs> I just love the fact that the acronym for Biblical Studies is BS. Messed up. Oh, it's a, no, it's amazing. Uh, as you might have noticed, our professionally talented co-host Tim McNinch is off this week, which leaves Rosie and me in the studio to celebrate the first Sunday after Epiphany, traditionally known as the celebration of the baptism of our Lord. The gospel reading this week takes up Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus, because it's year A in the RCL. Most preachers might gravitate immediately towards that gospel reading, but you, our dear listeners, are no ordinary preacher, no ordinary congregation member. You are here because you love the entire Bible, and you want to hear the fullness of our readings on this Sunday, right? You are here to discover more about how our first reading from the great prophet Isaiah intersects with our celebration of the baptism of Jesus. Preach, Rachel, I'm moved. (laughs) That's right, dear listener. There is so much more available in the fullness of our readings this week. And Matthew's gospel in particular, which is the revised common lectionary's focus throughout year A, was originally written for a largely Jewish audience Hmm. and is therefore especially conscious of the traditions in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. So the RCL this week pairs Matthew's relatively short account of Jesus's baptism with a passage from the prophet Isaiah. (laughs) Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 9 includes the first of what is better known in both Jewish and Christian traditions as the Suffering Servant Songs. And this series of songs has already a long-cherished place in Jewish interpretation as a means of seeing the kinds of suffering that the nation as a whole and the people themselves had endured for centuries. Hmm. And this servant song, particularly this first one, helps shape messianic hopes for a deliverer. Hmm. This is why Matthew's gospel, speaking to its primarily Jewish audiences already shaped by Isaiah's hopeful visions, uses this language to alert its audiences. Could this language be referring to Jesus? So Matthew's account of this baptism contains especially resonance with the first lines of the song from Isaiah 42. Mm. Try listening to the words of the prophet Isaiah and see if you can see the way that Matthew picks up on this language. So here's Isaiah. The first verse reads, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Mm. I have put my spirit upon him, He will bring forth justice to the nations. This image of God's love and approval, the spirit being poured out on this servant, finds itself in the Matthean account, in that voice from heaven that also says, now over Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Nice. And that's just the first verse of Isaiah 42. Right? Right? Just the first verse. Now, although the servant songs have been seen since the first century CE by Christian interpreters as referring to Jesus, these texts are actually much more ambiguous and Mm. they have multiple interpretations available to them. So in the interests of raising the mystery of this moment for our listeners, I'd like to invite us together to listen more deeply. Mm. For Christian listeners, that will mean allowing the prophetic cadences of Isaiah 42 to develop our imaginations in all its painful beauty and mystery. Nice. And there is plenty of mystery here. The identity of the servant chosen by God to bring justice to the world in this first verse of Isaiah 42, that's uncertain. Mm. 
in second Isaiah, which is where these songs are found, Israel or Jacob is referred to as God's servant and as God's chosen. In Isaiah 63, verse 11, Moses is referred to as God's servant. Yeah. yeah, right? So in other passages, it's much more ambiguous. The servant could be someone entirely different from Jacob, Moses, or the nation of Israel more broadly. My point is simply to say that we don't know the identity of the servant, and it's not clear from the context whether this is an individual or a collective term. Mm. And it's important to underscore that amb- ambiguity because this allowed for multiple interpretations. It allowed for the wonder and hope and inclusion of different experiences over the centuries. Mm, I love that. I love that. You know, I'm just, I'm always fascinated by the way that the Bible is relevant and speaks to different people throughout centuries and throughout different contexts. And rather than some distant Messiah, this passage really allowed readers and listeners to see themselves in the place of the servant. Right. And so in every generation, that ambiguity allowed for application in their place and time. And I want to suggest that just that was happening for centuries. This passage was seen as a reference to the collective Israel called by God to bring the nation's God's law and teachings revealed to the people through Moses and then expounded by the prophets. What has been translated as justice here in uh, Isaiah 42 is the Hebrew word mishpat, which appears three times in just those first four verses alongside the word for instruction, Torah, Mm. right? So the purpose of the servant is to bring forth justice, to offer judgment, that is teaching Torah, not just for Israel, And this is radical, but for the whole earth to Mm, the nations. Nice. The meekness, the humility of this servant figure was especially resonant for Isaiah's audiences. He doesn't shout, right? So in verse three, it reads, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not quench. Mm. Despite this gentleness, despite crushing circumstances around him, the servant endures to establish God's justice for the world. Yeah. This is a radically confident message written in a period of time post-exile when the future of the Jewish people was hardly secure, (laughs) right? Right. So the oracles of 2nd Isaiah were likely written around 540 BCE, before the return began, Mm. when this deported community was still in Babylon, doubting its status as God's chosen, doubting Mm. God's sovereignty at all, doubting their future. Mm. They had no reason to believe (laughs) that as verse 6 reads, Quote, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I've taken you by the hand and kept you. What? Mm -hmm. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. (laughs) A light to the nations, a mission to the world? (sighs) Considering their situation in Babylon, in exile, that hardly seemed possible. Mm. Yet the prophet insists with this message that Israel stand firm in its traditions And through its behaviors, through its faithfulness and righteousness, God would somehow illuminate the world with justice. Mm. And Torah, right? Justice and teaching. Right. That's that that beautiful pairing throughout there that I just just love that over and over again. And I love that image of illumination through justice and Torah. So, okay. I mean, beautiful, rich, powerful imagery How do you narrow in on something to preach on? How would you approach preaching this one? Right. So I want to go back to acknowledging the liturgical moment, Mm. right? So the RCL has a celebrating together the baptism of our Lord. Mm. And in order to more deeply appreciate the baptism of Jesus, as Matthew presents it, I'm going to urge preachers to spend some time with the Isaiah reading 
to mm-hmm. immerse themselves in the theological imagination of the Matthean audience. Oh, and I'm going to say that because this meditation, this time that you're spending in Isaiah, in my view, is not just going to pay off this week in your preaching, but throughout year A, mm. as we journey together through Matthew's account of Jesus. These themes of radical humility in the servant song and in John and Jesus' interactions here at the baptism, the image of the spirit in Isaiah and the dove descending in Matthew, mm. the voice from heaven declaring Jesus as chosen, loved, a delight. These are not de novo. Yeah. Just as every baptism in the church renews and rejoices in a long tradition, this baptism of Jesus that Matthew depicts, that draws upon a hope that preceded him. Oh my gosh, hang on. You need to say that again because that that's, <laughs> that line like just slays me. Say that whole, can you, I, okay. It's so good. Okay. All right. Just as every baptism in the church renews and rejoices in a long tradition, this baptism of Jesus that Matthew depicts draws upon a hope that preceded him. I, I do. I like, I'm tearing up Rosie as you, as you say that it's this, mm. uh, because I think baptism is so often seen as this individual thing between right. us and God. And what you're lifting up here is it it not only rejoices in a long tradition, it renews the tradition yeah. and that Jesus was drawing upon, I mean, drawing upon a hope that preceded him. Like, that's gorgeous. That's just the right, exactly. And I think that's exactly the preaching point that I would drive our listeners toward is that we are not walking alone in this, right? All of yeah. us were baptized into a tradition, something that's larger than us, larger than even mm. the church, right? So we are mm. called to this life of radical faithfulness to God in service to the world, mm. just as Isaiah is drawing out for his small listeners then, right? So preachers might well consider offering congregations some time to recall their own chosenness in a long line of yeah. servants of God in this new year, right? So mm. how many of us have considered that God delights in us, mm. declares us as his daughters and sons, and is pleased with us, yeah. right? So God's spirit rests upon each one of us, and this might be a wonderful moment to renew our own promises to life, relationships, and God in this new year. Mm. I could really imagine a sermon that draws upon the traditions and upon community, those communities that sustain not only us, but sustain Jesus and the church over centuries of pain and confusion, and may help us then to live out our faith just a little bit more confident that we don't walk alone into our baptismal promises, but we follow in a long, long pattern. Mm. I, I just love that. I it's it's hard for me. I still haven't quite found a way to articulate this. And it's not about baptism directly, but it's it's analogous. I so you know, we're both trained at Emory. Um, Carol Newsom was one of our teachers. She was one of the groundbreaking female scholars in biblical interpretation. And I always felt so blessed to sort of sit at the feet of a a mother, you know, not just a father in my tradition, but a mother in my tradition. And through SBL, through the years, I've gotten to know more and more um, women in particular who have long been involved in the business of preaching, of teaching, of scholarship. And each time I, I meet them, I feel like I don't not quite know how to describe it, but I feel like my, I, I feel more grounded. I feel like my cup is more full. I feel, um, yeah, just more enlivened by this, this thing that we get to do. And I, I think asking folks to reflect on who are those baptismal people in their lives, like who are the people they meet that are like, I get to be involved in the same thing you're doing, which is being a baptized child of God for justice and mishpat and Torah for the sake of the world. Like, who are those people who make you feel 
more grounded and centered in that. I think that's a gorgeous way to to imagine doing this kind of sermon on baptism. Right, and you're understanding the reason why during baptism we have what we call either sponsors or yeah. godparents that are there is to reaffirm not only for the one that's being baptized, but for the whole community that that's not an individual thing. Yeah. It's, it's together that we're raised in something, yeah, you know, like right. that, yeah, raised towards something. Yeah. That we don't exist. We cannot, we literally cannot exist apart from each other. It doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. No, uh, gorgeous. Right. Okay. So I could wax poetic on this for a long time, but we have to stay focused because Tim's not here to keep us focused. So <laughs> <laughs> any preaching pitfalls that you would want to highlight? Right. So there's a major thing that I'd want to watch out for, and, and that's in the last verse of this reading. So um, many folks will probably recognize this line. So verse nine reads, see the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. So Christians, please be careful, right? I've heard this verse interpreted to mean, okay, the new thing is Christ and it's the new covenant. And that that means the former things are somehow abolished, the Jewish law and the Torah. Mm. Now, this is a blatantly supersessionist reading and mm. it's it's really, a, really easy to do here. Mm -hmm. But this reading does not comport at all with the context of this song, right? Mm. So I want you to hear what's going on in Isaiah. The idea of former things here in this passage for the first suffering servant song that's a reference to the experience of exile, deportation, yeah. and displacement. Yeah. The new thing, the new thing that the prophet is declaring is a second exodus, yeah. right? A leaving of Babylon, a returning to a land and a glorious purpose. Yeah. So there are ways to preach freshness and newness without dismissing what has come before. Mm. And that's been part of what I've been trying to urge Christian preachers, we both have in this, in this conversation, is that we want to be aware of the ways that this passage has been abusively used to dismiss the past. And yeah. we in the United States in particular, I think, are prone to worship what's new and fresh and exciting <laughs> over what's maybe what's older, what's traditional, or what's been said before. Mm -hmm. But we might instead really look to this passage in Isaiah the way that Matthew did in fresh ways as he considers Jesus' baptism and all that it might signal for their nation under a brutal Roman occupation this yeah. time. And through Isaiah, Matthew attempts to encourage his audiences to take up and cherish what has sustained them in the past and now to also see Jesus illuminated by that earlier word. Oh, yeah, exactly. So that's such a great, right? because we were just talking about how God uses uh, mishpat and Torah, justice and teaching to illuminate the world. And then you talked about how Jesus is illuminated as well by those things. And I, I think yeah. that's that's so key, is when the, when the prophet is talking about the new things, Mishpat and Torah are in the, like they are part of the new things. They are not the things yes. that are passed by. So yeah, beautifully done. Oh, folks, that brings us to the ends of this week's episode. I hope it was helpful for you. I, I could imagine so many great sermons out of this. So thank you, Rosie, for all that work. Thank you. Remember, friends, all of our episodes are at firstreadingpodcast.com along with other resources and your very own First Reading swag on the merch page. If you are on the Facebook, you can also find us there and give us some feedback in the comments. A special thank you to those who generously choose to donate to keep First Reading sustainable. Thank you also to Tim McNinch for music, production, and dealing with us. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, I'm the Reverend Dr. Rachel Redd. And I'm Rosie Candlethal. Happy preaching. <laughs>